good thing to do on any of these videos is if you like it, you know, click to follow or click uh, so that you can get more updates about any other Shurim. And if you want, you can share this with others too. Okay, so we got to do this uh, this year by Zoom. Unfortunately, I broke my leg recently, um, but okay. So we are just doing this virtually rather than live. Um, at any point, people can join. Can just um, just unmute yourselves and you can ask. But I'm going to go reading through. We want to get through Megillas Esther, and I want to make some points by way of introduction. First of all, Megillas Esther, the the Megillah, the actual, which contains the whole story of Purim. We normally think of it as something like it's one of the many books of Nach, one of the many biblical books. It tells a tremendous story when the Jewish people were in tremendous danger and got saved. But if we listen to the rabbis, if we listen to Chazal, we realize that it is of a totally different order of magnitude, the significance of Megillah Sester. <laughs> Yushami Megillah says that it is, says, Rav Yochanan says that in the future, the books of Nach won't need to be learned anymore, only the Torah. Right? And as there comes some time, maybe after Mashiach or something, and the Rishlokish says, and Megillas Esther, right? And they, he learns it from what's going to, we're going to learn it together, hopefully, in the ninth prayer, in the ninth chapter, towards the end, when the whole discussion back and forth uh, of Mordechai and Esther instituting Purim as a permanent Yom Tov festival, use the words, it will not pass. And Rishlokish says, that includes reading the Megillah, reading the story. Okay, so in Halacha, we're going to have, it's now eternal. It can't go away, even in Yemai Sumashech, even after then. Right? But what does that mean? Why? Why? What's in Megillah? More than in Sefer Yoshua, more than the book of, uh, of Yeshayahu Hanavi, all his visions and prophecies, more than this, somehow going to outlast all of those. And it echoes a medrash in the Yalkut Shimoni, um, on Mishle, in uh, Rema's Tov Tov Kuf Memdal, 944, section 944, that said the words, Asidin there will come a time when all the festivals, all the Yom and Tovim, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, will all be gone, right? And uh, the Radvaz in, in one of his Shadis and Shavuot explains one of the, uh, says the reason is because in times of Mashiach, every day will be like those Yom and Tovim. In other words, whatever spiritual levels and peaks are, I guess this is after Mashiach, because the Torah has got to be for Mashiach too, maybe in Olam Abba, in some real future dimension. Whatever level Pesach can bring us to, or Shavuos, or Sukkot, or all these things, Rosh Hashanah, will be a permanent state. And yet carries on the Medrash. The Yemei Purim, Einam Betelin, Oilam. The days of Purim will never be gone. So amazingly, even when you're in this super elevated state, past the Messianic era, past Mashiach, somehow Purim will have something that can take us further. By the way, the Medrash carries on and says that Revelaz says also Yom Kippur. In other words, <laughs> Yom Kippur is a chiddush. Right? It's like, it's not obvious. Purim's obvious. What do you mean? Purim is not even in the Torah. Purim. What, is, what does all this mean? So obviously there's something happening here that is part of the journey. If you take the elevation of steps we go, you know, the, the Yom and Tobin take us here. Even in Mashiach's era, we'll, we'll still need them. Then there comes a point where we've transcended those. Purim takes us to a level of revelation of Hashem that none of the others do. Right? Even though it's not explicitly in the Torah at all, but it, it's part, well, it's, it will hopefully eventually discover where it is in the Torah, maybe one or two psukim in the Torah, but the, the level of revelation it can take us on transcends everything. So, and that's contained in the Megillah and learning it will hopefully bring us to some understanding of this. Now, another important thing to, to by way of introduction over here is that it's the only, of all the biblical books, all of Tanakh, 
It's the only one that has an entire medrash, an entire rabbinic commentary running through Shas in the Gemara itself. In Masechus Megillah, all the way through Dafyud, all the way through to the end of the first chapter, you have literally a commentary on the Megillah. So we've got the regular midrashim, like the, the Megillah, the, the um, uh, Esther Rabbah, right? And we've also got the Gemara. And in fact, if you look at the various commentaries on the Megillah, many of them trace their commentary around the words of the Gemara. So we'll try and do a bit of that as well. Um, okay, let's get started. Now the Megillah begins with the words of Aihibi Me'achashverosh. It was in the days of Achashverosh. And here we already have an opening uh, comment. I remember many years ago, I was living in the old cities to get some shirim of, of a Rabbi Weinberg. Um, and he said, an important rule, that whenever you want to study any book of Tanakh, any biblical book, look how it starts, look how it finishes. That transition is going to be central. Now, when it comes to Megillah, it's not obvious because the story is about Haman, the anti-Semite who wants to kill the Jews, Mordechai and Esther who save them. And none of those characters, maybe Haman a little bit, are using a different name, but they don't appear in the first chapter. In fact, it's not so clear to the uh, first reading through the Megillah if that first chapter is really necessary at all. So much so the Gemara in Megillah and Daphiotes actually discusses what is the essential part of the reading of the Megillah. And it's several different opinions, only one of which says, you've got to go all the way from the beginning of the story. But Lemais, in actuality, we do pass and we do hold of this. So we hold this is an essential part of the story. But this whole journey and, and the changes and everything happens to Achashverosh is critical to the story. Now, as we go through the Megillah, we'll discover more and more of how this actually works, how this works in actuality, because the opening and closing chapters of the Megillah are about Achashverosh. And we're going to learn as we go through that the Vilnagon um, actually says that Achashverosh, each character in the Megillah symbolizes a different part of our inner persona, or they exemplify certain aspects. He exemplifies the Yetzara, right? The, the negative, short-term, animalistic inclinations. And somehow it's possible to learn that he's going to be changing in the story. In, in other words, there's two stories going on. There's Haman who wants to kill the Jews and Mordechai is fighting against him. But there's also Achashverosh who needs to be changed and Esther will help to change him. And until he changes, we can't be saved. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. Let's get in. So it is in the days of Achashverosh. Even that, the opening phrase, the Gemara and the Medrash both say, Vayhi isn't Vayhi, doesn't it always introduce bad stuff? No, sometimes the word Vayhi and it was introduces good things too. But Vayhi it was in the days of always introduces something negative. It's a transitional phrase. It was, things were changing. So in the days of Achashverosh, he's Achashverosh and already the commentaries bring this up. The, the Chazal, the rabbis bring it up. It should say Hamonoch who ruled past tense. Hamoylech means he's in the process of coming into rule. But as we're going to see, he's already a few years into his rule. What's happening? He's physically a ruler. He's 127 city-states. So what's, what's he? He's trying to rule. And the Gemara explains, he was physically, logistically, and politically the ruler. But psychologically, he wasn't. He always had lots of insecurities, and we'll see them play out about his rule, because he wasn't meant to be the ruler. He'd killed his way to power. He's usurped his way, married his way. He's manipulated his way to that which was not his. And that already, right from the word go, is going to be a central issue that will play itself all the way through the Megillah. By Yom in those days, 
it was, it was like he was sitting comfortably on his throne. Now, Rashi says you can read the word Kashevas when he was sitting. And if you're just going to try and read on a simple level, you have to say that. But what you'll notice is that every time we read about a state of mind of Ahasuerus for the first six chapters, it's always prefixed ka, which most natural reading is, is like. And that opens up this idea that he is living in a fake world. Everything is projected images. Kersha is like he's sitting comfortably on his throne. He is not comfortable on his throne, as we're about to see. He's incredibly uncomfortable on his throne. But it's like he's sitting comfortably on his throne. That's in Shoshana Bira. And again, every word here is so poignant. I'm only going to point out some keys. The word Bira, there's only two places in Nach, in all the biblical texts, that are called Bira, the capital city. Shushan here, and the place of the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Yerushalayim. And so even the use of the phrase suggests part of at least what's subconsciously insecure. Is here the Bira? Have I managed to create the type of reality that the Jewish people once had before their temple was destroyed in Yerushalayim? Or am I a usurper, a faker? And I want to create that world that once people talked about in the days of Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, and all these other, I want to build the center point of human existence here, right? By the way, amazingly, the word Shushan is also a name for the Jewish people. Right, because we are Shoshan Veinachoychim. Right, it's a phrase used in Shirashim, the Song of Songs, about the rose. That's us, Shoshana. Right, that we're 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 the rose. So we are Shushan. So you got literally the the whether it's conscious or subconscious, the attempt to recreate what the home of God once was here in Shushan, and that's a big root of it. He's got one insecurity that he wasn't meant to be the the king at all. The Persian Median Empire. It was the Babylonian Empire. Another insecurity that he knows, again, consciously or not, probably consciously, there was a big base that there was, in fact, we'll soon see it was conscious. A house of God standing in Yerushalayim, standing in the Bira. Has he been able to turn Shushan into the Bira, into this new alternative? By the way, amazingly, the Beis HaMikdash um, in, in Yerushalayim, had a, in the second temple, has a gate called the Shah Shushan with a picture of Shushan. So you see the links between the two. Okay. He gets all the provisional governors and state governors and, and, and all the, the nobility from everywhere in the whole empire and brings them in the third year to Shushan. And what's the purpose of all of that? He wants to show them how great he is. <laughs> he wants to buy them in. This part of insecurity. I need to buy them into my greatness. And we'll see later, he'll make a participatory. In fact, we'll see a few steps he's going to do to try to buy people into his imperial control. He is not Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a top-down imperial control. That's not his strategy. He doesn't feel strong enough for that. He's desperately trying to woo people and win them over. So what does he do? Barois is trying to show us the wealth of the glory, of the honor of his kingship. And the preciousness of the splendor of his greatness. It's going to be a six-month, 180-day party. Now, those words, the two key things he's showing there for is his covered, his honor, the wealth of the honor of his, and the tifaras, the, the splendor, Yikar Covered and tifaras come together one other time in Tanakh. Pashas Tetzava, when we introduce the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, and the clothing he wears, it's lechovod or lechifaras, the same words. The honor and the splendor, which is where the rabbis get the idea that he was wearing the clothes of the high priest of the Kohen Gadol. Meaning, again, it's the same point. Am I fit to rule the world? Can I take over that 
the Babylonian Empire? Can I take over what it destroyed, which was before then the House of God Empire, the Jewish people, right? And all of this, he's desperately trying to get that approval. By the way, throughout history, many races, many, many cultures, many religions more, more than the races, cultures, but many people will try to say, we are the new Jews. Effectively, that's what he's trying to do. And it's six months. Now, by the way, the six month is archaeologically very significant because we now know that the Persians had two capital cities, Shushan and Persopolis, and each one was used for six months of the year. All the key stories in the Megillah are going to happen in the Shushan center, right? So that's why it's going to be 180 days. So half a year. Um, now, when this glorification show is over, then he now opens the palace to everybody, every Tom de Canary, everyone who's in Shushan. And most people in Shushan were, were administrators of the empire, but still, everybody's going to be called right? the, the great to the small Mishta Shivas Yamim. He's now going to have a seven-day drinking party. In the courtyard of the garden of the home of the king. Now let me pause here again just to notice something. The, we know Right, that God's name does not appear in the Megillah. Right, it's one of only two biblical books. Only two books of Tanakh where Hashem's name does not appear. If you don't know the other one, that could be your homework to find it out. But that means that in the overt story, anything is revealed in the text. The Yesod goes to many, but Rav Aaron Kotler is very famous for saying it. Whatever's revealed in the text is revealed in the world. Whatever's hidden in the text is hidden in the world. So if God's name is not revealed in the text, it means if you were standing there, there's no moment you could have gone, oh, there's Hashem. It's all happening behind the scenes. But the hint that God's involved is when instead of calling him Melech HaShverosh, King Xerxes or King HaShverosh, or whatever, whether it was Xerxes, Arctic Xerxes, that's another discussion. It's HaMelech the King. Here we're using the word HaMelech the King and we're talking about the courtyard of the garden of the home of the king. So the sensitive ear cannot avoid hearing the Garden of Eden over here. Right. So there's now obviously again the physical on earth. King Ahasuerus is busy making his party, but perhaps again part of his subconscious. He wants to make this again Aiden on earth, but on a deeper level, there's something happening in the higher realm in the world we'll call Gan Eden. And this will turn out to be something pivotal as we go through the Megillah. I'm just dropping the little hint of it right now. Okay. But it's of course seven days, which will parallel the seven days of creation. And just like they were creating a new reality whose culmination will be the seventh day, Achashverosh is creating a new reality whose culmination is its seventh day. What is it? This tremendous opulence that's being described over here. By the way, those of you who are in England, um, if you want, you can go to the British Museum. You actually see in the Persian room uh, some of this. In particular, there's a reconstruction of Persopolis. It was almost identical to the Shushan Palace but just more of it's archaeologically standing, so it's been reconstructed. And you can see a screen that shows you, and you literally can read this book and it's like, wow, I can see how, this is just gigantic, opulent, beautiful, awe-inspiring place where you could fit thousands and thousands of people. So that's what it is. And and uh, so the hangings of the white and the fine cotton, the trellis, the blue wool, they're all hanging on these uh, cords of fine linen, they're gomon and purple, glilikas, but they're all really on their side. There are these hangings. Uh, on these glile kesef, on these kind of silver rods, amude sheish, these marble pillars, gigantic marble pillars, mitos of people sitting on couches of gold and silver, on these floors of green, white, and daras and certain onyx and marble. But the Gemara also says something beautiful. There's a double play on words in the last words. Dar is the Hebrew for liberty, drar, and sechiris for markets. 
it was not just everyone come in and, and you can participate in this wealth. This is also, you can be yours. But yes, this was collected by the taxes, but now I'm cutting taxes, cutting, liberating the economy. It's the insecure king. In those days, a democratic leader, that, that's what might be able to do, cut taxes, let you all be. Our whole point of an empire is one person can marshal all the creative force of the empire. To, he can't do that. He's letting everything go. He's liberalizing everything. He's trying to buy everybody. And we'll see how this goes even further. And to, they should all drink from golden goblets and lots of different vessels. And of course, when we read it, the tune we read this to, is the tune of Eicha, the crying for the destruction of the temple, because we understand that just like other kings in that region, as we read about Nach, when they had big public celebrations, they brought out the temple vessels. So again, the same theme we touched upon before. There's loads of, of wine. But nobody will get drink, get drunk. Each, everybody, the amount of wine they got was in, each person's in charge of their own home. To try to please everybody. That's him in a nutshell. Trying to please everybody. And that will continue. And by the way, the Gemara says, Ish, for Ish, there's only two people called Ish, a nobleman in the whole story, uh, Mordechai, Ish, Abir, and, and Haman. And both of them, so he's trying to please Mordechai and Haman, the, the anti-Semites, yeah, I'm on your side. Pro-Semites, yeah, I'm on your side. He, he's like a modern democratic ruler trying to promise everything to everyone, but he's supposed to be an emperor, right? This is the, this is all to introduce. So on the one hand, we see this deeply insecure person. He's trying to usurp the threat of a return of spirituality to the world that could undermine him. He's celebrating the fact that Gamar says that he miscalculated. He thought the 70 year exile was over. So that gives him, you know, he's, he doesn't have, he, he's after wealth and glory and honor and drink. Like every eight Sahara is, we literally have, we, all of us have that little Achashverish persona who lurks in a world of falsehood and illusion, who makes us wear masks that are not real. And we're about to see where it's about to lead us, who's desperately trying to please everybody because a large root of it is, of the eight Sahara is actual insecurity. Now comes the next part of the story. Also Vashti, says the Gemara, also means she was in cahoots. This seven-day plan was something they were sharing together, which will make the next bit more shocking. It was also in the royal house. The house was, there wasn't a royal house. It was a royal gigantic palace compound. There was a whole section where she was, where he was. On the seventh day, this is the climax. This is what we've been waiting for. When his king's heart was good with wine, it was like he was good with wine. This insecure man is never feeling good with wine. All the wine in the world can't mask that deep underlying hollow feeling of not being good enough. But okay, what's his next step in his great plan? And getting everyone on his side. We list all the ones. The seven closest people he could actually trust. And he says his own inner chamber um, officers. That to bring Vashti the queen in front of the whole men's room over here, the, the room with all the men who were drinking and partying, with the crown, says the Gemara, and nothing else. Right? This was, what was this about? But remember, she was in on this too at this stage. This is everywhere where liberalism always goes, freeing everything, freeing everything. But ultimately, it's unleashing the Yetzirah. And the Yetzirah says, hey, the negative drives say, hey, we want to be wild and free. Forget taboos, forget these marriage values, forget all this. Let's just, come on, this is how we win the people over. 1960s, this is what, what we're doing over here. 
And then comes the shock. Right? What was the purpose? How beautiful she is. She's so beautiful. Boom. Shock of all shocks. She refuses. The plan has fallen apart. And that's got a strong sting. The Gemara says she sent a letter saying, you stable boy. I come from real royal lineage. Right? My father was a real emperor. He could drink a thousand barrels. Nothing would happen to him. You have a few drinks and you've gone. Well, what changes? The Gemara says famously every child who you know, learns a story, she looked in the mirror and she sees she's wearing a tail and scales. And there's many different levels to understanding. You read different Mepharshim. So one level that would stick more to the natural understanding of things is is she looks in the mirror and suddenly feels very insecure. She's about to go on show and she suddenly feels, oh, I look like an animal here. But then she suddenly, at deeper levels, she realizes I'm being made an animal. In that moment of insecurity, the fun disappears for a moment and suddenly she wakes up and realizes this is not about fun. This is about me being an object of his gratification. And this whole animalism, and that's why she responds, you're an animal, you're sick, right? It's like the delayed reaction to the 1960s when you get a Me Too movement 50, 60 years later. But that's what's really, in some level, that's, I'm just relating it to relatively contemporary things, but this sense of this is, this Yetzirah leads to pretty disgusting, like, wrong places. The other levels of depth, of course, are that the tail and scale is the Nachosh. This all linked back to the serpent of, of Gan Eden, which we've already touched upon and, and issues that we're going to touch upon. Um, so there's a lot happening over here, but now he's got a problem. She She's denied a royal edict. He's got a problem now. He's angry, but he's got to hold it in because he's stuck. On the one hand, he's suffering public humiliation. On the other hand, if he reacts, he looks weak. So what does he do? He does what Achashverosh always does. He brings the media team in. He, he never made decisions without calling the lawyers and calling everybody else. That's how he worked. Now we list Shesad, Mosel, Tashish, Meris, Marasna, and Memuchan. Memuchan is going to be the key player who we're told is also Homon, whose very name means that which is prepared. And we're going to get a sense. Of course, he's preparing a plan for the future of his own aggrandizement and rising up in power. But Hashem is using him to prepare something completely different. By the way, in those days, it was quite common to have two names, an official palace name and, uh, and a per personal name. Okay. These are the guys who sat first at the king. What are we going to do? She's publicly humiliated the king. Who sent his messengers. Now exhibits absolute crazy ingenuity in understanding the psychology of Achashverosh. He says it for the king. He deliberately does this in front of all the officers. You think this is about you personally, Achashverosh? This has nothing to do. We know you, your ego is so secure. You probably wouldn't even notice this, right? So, of course, you'd just forgive and let it go. The issue is this is not about you. This is about us. Why? Look at all the officers over here. Look at all the princes of all the provinces. And all the peoples. What's happening here is an international crisis and we desperately need your intervention. You know what's happening in the other room right now? 
right? We're going to get there in a second, but all the women in the whole province, in the whole state, in the whole empire are going to hear this. The word's going to spread, the rumor. Achashverosh said she should come. She refused. Already today, listen to what's going on there. All the princesses in the room next door, in the, in, in the other side of the courtyard over there, are saying, they've heard her say it in public. There's only one fitting response. We are going to have a feminist revolution. We're going to have women refusing to listen to our men. This could be terrible. What a disaster. There's only one fitting option. Please, on our behalf, feel our bidabizayan and the ketzef. Feel our humiliation and come with anger. Because this is not about you. This is about us. You see how this gives him his loophole? He's not reacting for the people. Ah, me? I don't care. But I don't want anybody else to learn the wrong lesson over here. So I now must step forward to defend masculinity itself, to defend all, I mean, and this whole issue of Zachar Nakeva, these are all very, very deep issues, which I'm not going to go into the omic of the depth of now. But you begin to get a sense of, of, of where Achashverosh is, how Mamucham will play him, how this fits into the world of ka, of fake, of nonsense, of, of, of imagery, of all of this stuff that's going on. There's so many layers to this. Again, we're, we're, we're just going to learn a certain level, but you can, those open up other svarim, we'll see how deep these points I'm making actually go much further than I'm, I'm making them over here in the shirim in here. Okay, but now let's look at this amazing next sentence. So, if it's good for the king, may there be an edict go out from before the king. May he write into the laws of Persia media and make it irrevocable. Now, whether Haman was introducing at this point a new concept of a constitution of laws the king makes that cannot be repealed, or whether just putting into the category of those that already existed, this is going to become central later on. Because the idea of the king making laws that the king cannot repeal, that have constitutional force, will mean that later on, the decree to kill the Jews cannot be directly repealed and has to be reinterpreted and, and the militaries have to be there to defend them on the days the anti-Semites come to kill them, etc. So it will become very significant. It's all part of the Mamuchan, all part of that which is being prepared. But perhaps the ultimate Mamuchan, the ultimate being prepared, comes in the next words. That Vashti refused to come to the Achashresh, is now written into the law of Persia. And her kingship. The king should give to her colleague, Hatoiva Mimena, who is better than her. That phrase occurs one more time in Nach, much earlier back in Sefer Shmuel, when Agag is the king of the Amaleki who wants to destroy the Jewish people, and, Sha and Shalom Melech, King Saul, fails to kill Agag. He defeats his military, but he does not kill Agag. And Shmuel gets really furious with him. In the end, Shmuel kills Agag, but it's too late. Agag has children. One of those great-great-great-great-grandchildren will be Haman. The seed of the desire to destroy Kalal to destroy the Jewish people, is in the world. And Shmuel tells uh, Shal, he tells, the prophet Shmuel tells the king, Shal, that your kingship is going to be lost. will be given, your malchus will be given to your colleague, Hatova Mimeko is better than you. Right? The grammatical prefixes and suffixes are altered for male, female, first person, third person, but the phrase is the same phrase. Shal Amalach, King Saul, loses his kingship because he failed to get rid of the threat of Agag. And the phrase used was, it will be given, your kingship will be given to your colleague who's better than you. That's how he's deposed. Centuries later, the great, 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 great grandchild of Agag, with the same mission to kill the Jews, will use the identical phrase inadvertently and without realizing it to reintroduce the great, 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 great granddaughter 
of Shaul HaMelech, because through this phrase, Esther will become the queen, and she will in the end save us. And he doesn't even realize the irony of what he's saying. This is Hashem pushing behind the scenes. Even when evil gets his journey upwards, behind the scenes, Hashem is ensuring the long term. In the short term, evil can win. In the long term, it just becomes a vessel, a key for its own destruction of the revelation of Hashem. So this is an amazing thing. The, the powerless, and but the Megillah does very, very often, by the way, drops little phrases in that have tremendously deep meaning that the people saying them may not even know what they meant, but it wants you to understand how it connects back through little, this is how, this is how divine text works. I just really begin to see some of the Eilam Abbas, some of the, there's just a little, it clicks here, boom, you open that parashanach and suddenly you realize, even before you read any further, what's happening in this story. Okay, we're almost out of time. Let's keep going a little bit more. We've got, And right, the, the proclamation of the king should be heard, uh, resounding throughout the kingdom, because it is so great. <laughs> That's how you talk to so many politicians uh, who just have this ego problem. I, your king, which is so great, your majesty, you know. Um, All women should honor their men, uh, their husbands. Crush any feminism. This is a masculinist place. The king thought this is wonderful. All the officers say, oh, it's fantastic. What a brilliant idea. And so they do. He sends, they send all these guys running out all over now, the, the entire empire. El Medina, Medina, one city state after another. Kiksava in its own script. That's very important because the Babylonians, this Ravionis says both in the Medrash and in the Gemara Megillah when he gives an introduction, one of many introductions that are recorded, the rabbis who taught the Megillah gave and he gives a whole posuk about the crushing of everything Babylonian. Babylonians had one national, one script that everybody had to write in, an official language of the empire. One language and one script, one Ksav and one Loshan, right? Probably Akkadian, right? He's getting rid of all of that. He's democratizing the whole place as it were, not literal democracy, but, but he's liberalizing, he's divesting his, his power, desperate to win the people. So everyone in their own scripts, everyone in their own language, every individual, as far down as the, the men it goes to, right, is now in charge of their own home, speak whatever language you want. And so here we've picked up so many issues that are opening the story and we begin to understand why the story begins with Ahasuerus. In this world where everything is fake and everything is about short-term and everything is about temptation and everything is about wild animalism and everything is about greed and honor and insecurity and lies and deception and falsehood is the world where the person who can manipulate their way to the top is the fellow who wants to kill the Jews. In a world where evil, where the first layer is not what we'd even call evil, it's just raw animalism, has a deep insecurity if the God is going to return to the Jewish people, another voice can come up and say, let's go and kill them. How these exactly connect and how Ahasuerush, according to some Mepharshim, remains as evil all the way through, according to others, he's actually rectified in the story. This we'll have to see as Hashem as we go through. I'm going to stop now. Um, if there are questions, I'll stay around from afterwards, but you have to unmute yourself uh, to ask them.